it's great to be here to talk about um, um, how to evaluating seniors for cognitive impairment and testing. And um, I'm a clinical psychologist at UCLA and I work in geriatrics and I predominantly see patients that are um, that have cognitive impairment through neuropsychological testing. I work a lot with families. And, uh, and so today I'm gonna to talk about how to evaluate se seniors for cognitive impairment and, and what you can do in your work to recognize and, um, and even intervene and help people with recommendations um, who you recognize have cognitive impairment. So we're gonna go over a little bit of terminology in the beginning and to understand what cognitive impairment is like, is like, we're gonna really talk about what happens in normal aging and then work our way into um, uh, more, um, more detailed information. So let's talk about a little terminology. You're gonna hear me saying, using these terms on and off during this presentation. One is what, what is major neurocognitive disorder? And that really is the DSM-5 term for dementia. And it used to be called dementia, but that term is really not used um, in the DSM-5 anymore, but that's what it is. And it's evidence of any kind of acquired cognitive decline, meaning that something happens to you uh, in life where you start to have cognitive decline. It's often memory, but it can be other cognitive uh, areas such as language or um, executive functions like planning and reasoning or attention problems. But the, the take home message here is that it interferes with people living or acting independently. So these problems are not just little problems. They're, they're big cognitive problems that affect people's ability to function day to day. So that's, that's really what dementia is. It's the functional impairment that defines what is dementia versus what is a lesser degree of cognitive impairment. It also includes problems with social functioning, occupational functioning. So maybe people, again, they can't work anymore um, there could be personality changes, and there's usually some kind of underlying cause or disease. So again, dementia is not anything that anybody is born with. It's not like a learning disability that's developmental disorder. It is something that's acquired in life. Um, mild neurocognitive disorder, on the other hand, is the lesser degree of, of cognitive impairment. So cognition is not normal, but it's, it's not as severe as somebody who has dementia. And there's really no to minimal functional impairment. Maybe there's takes more effort to do something, but people are still able to live independently. So that's what makes the difference between mild neurocognitive disorder and major neurocognitive disorder is the degree of severity and, and the ability to live independently or not. So the term mild cognitive impairment is more of a research term, but essentially it's, it's 
the same thing as mild neurocognitive disorder. So mild cognitive impairment, you probably hear that word a lot, is that intermediate stage of cognitive uh, ability that's not normal, but it's not so bad that somebody has dementia. So I keep using the word normal. Well, what is normal? And we really, you know, it's unclear what normal aging is because age, uh, cognitive abilities do change as we age, they get worse. So there's nobody that's like 80 or 70 or even 60 who is like they were when they were 20. So the question is how bad and how much of decline and when do you make that switch from what's normal age related to something that's beyond normal, right? And so sometimes it's difficult to tell. Even some of the like superstars of people who are, you know, in their 90s, like let's talk about Jimmy Carter, who's like sharp in, in his 90s, even people like that ha still have cognitive decline. And some of them even have some of the same changes in the brain that you see in people with Alzheimer's disease, but they're managing to stay independent and maintain. So what does change though, as we age? What cognitive abilities change and when do they change? So one way to think about cognitive abilities is to think about crystallized abilities and fluid abilities. So crystallized abilities are is really old knowledge. It's stuff that we learn through our cultural or social interactions, through our occupation and through early education. So questions like, you know, define this word or who is Martin Luther King? Factual types of information. That's what you call crystallized knowledge. And that actually improves through life and stays stable and then starts to waver and decline around ages like 70s and on. So in other words, some people think of this as like wisdom and it stays stable for many, many years. Now, fluid abilities are the abilities that have to do with newly acquired things. So new knowledge and the speed of processing information, speed of thinking. And so the kinds of cognitive abilities that fall under fluid abilities include new learning and recall. So you're in a class and you have to learn something new. So that's not the same as who is Martin Luther King or define the word, you know, compose. It's about, I'm gonna give you five words to remember. I want you to remember them and tell me them later. That's new learning. It has to do about, uh, about how quickly people process information, how fast they think, and reasoning, planning, and very high level cognitive functions. Now, this does these abilities start to decline at much younger ages. So the speed of processing, believe it or not, actually starts to decline like in the late 20s. And um, other abilities tend to, to decline starting, you know, 40s and 50s. But what we notice is that the decline like is faster, it's steeper after the age of 65. So again, crystallized is old knowledge, 
stays stable for a long time, but it's the fluid types of abilities like the new learning and speed of thinking and flexibility in thinking and reasoning that do change with age. And uh, right, I wanna point out too that there are individual differences in all of these abilities throughout, you know, across people. And the rate of decline in these abilities does depend on the health of the individual, depends on their genetics and lifestyle factors. So not everybody declines at the same rate. And certainly people are not born with, you know, with uniform abilities in these two areas. There's variability within people and natural variability across people. So here's more of a picture of what happens in aging. If you have the, the y-axis here is cognitive functioning, and this is better up here on the top. Then you have time going across as time increases. So everybody, most people start out here, unless there's some kind of developmental problem, people start with normal cognition and gradually, gradually over time, they decline. And then somewhere they fall into this MCI range, right? These are the folks that are gonna get worse and develop dementia. They usually develop something like mild cognitive impairment first, and they stay there for a while. And then their cognition continues to decline. And usually the diagnosis of dementia is made here when they're no longer independent, right? But here's the thing, this is why this is gray, is that there's a gray area here. And it's like, when does normal become not normal? And <clears throat> we don't really know, it's different for everybody. And some people will never get mild cognitive impairment. They'll always stay uh, cognitively intact or normal for their age, and other people will not. So this is the tough part that's all that's, you know, to figure out, especially when you're working with clients, right? This is where we all kind of have our, uh, that's just where the question mark comes in. But we have some tools to help us make those decisions. So what does contribute to cognitive impairment in aging? Well, we have neurological disease, right? So remember on this prior screen that I showed you, Here's the dementia diagnosis. What makes somebody cross this line is that there's often a neurological disease going on. And that disease starts here, starts earlier, but doesn't really manifest until later. So diseases like Alzheimer's disease, we know start earlier before people are even showing symptoms, the brain is changing. So um, neurological disease is one of those contributions. Uh, and there are other types of neurodegenerative dementias or dementias that when we say neurodegenerative, meaning the brain is changing and they get worse over time. So things like Parkinson's disease and frontotemporal dementia are some examples of that. Then you can have cognitive impairment due to cerebrovascular disease and stroke. So those aren't really considered neurodegenerative, but you know, technically speaking, they can be because people can get worse if they continue to have changes in their brain related to cerebral blood flow. So things that can contribute to those conditions 
and affect blood flow in the brain and having little strokes include cardiac disease and high cholesterol, hardening of the arteries, hypertension. These are all risk factors for having brain impairment because as I'll show you in a little while, that it's all about blood flow to the brain. Now, you can have a traumatic brain injury. So again, some people get dementia after a significant um, head injury. Uh, some people get dementia because of a tumor. So that would be more under neurological disease. And some people can get dementia because of substance use, like too much, right? And so I'm gonna talk a little bit later about Korsakoff's disease and alcoholic dementia. And there's some other diseases that aren't, that aren't on this list, like MS, that would fall under neurological disease as well. And people can have toxic metabolic syndrome. So some people have liver disease and they can get a dementia related to liver disease. So there's a lot of ways that people can get dementia, but I would say neurological disease is, is the most common and also um, the accumulation of cerebrovascular disease. Other contributors is polypharmacy. So usually people that are taking a lot of drugs could have memory problems from interactions or side effects of those drugs. So some of the common culprits of this would include drugs that have what we call anticholinergic effects. So whenever you're reading on the... Um, on the label of a bottle that says side effects. And they say things like dizziness, nausea, dry mouth, constipation. Those usually are the side effects that have to do with anticholinergic drugs. So this affects the acetylcholine in the brain, which is a major neurotransmitter involved in memory but they often have those side effects. So drugs that fall in the anticholinergic category include antihistamines, so ye old Benadryl. So I bet people have patients that are taking Benadryl to help them sleep. Well, it can also muck up their memory too. Um, benzodiazepines are drugs that fall in the family of Ativan, right, Valium. Some of the older, uh, antidepressants, the tricyclic antidepressants can have anticholinergic effects. Uh, many, but not all of the urinary incontinence medications like Detrol can have effects on memory. And then there are other drugs as well. The other would be any drugs that cause sedation, right? So either you have a drug hangover, that's, that's another reason, or these drugs sedate people and again, they're not thinking clearly. Other contributors include uh, psychiatric disorders. So depression is associated with cognitive impairment, schizophrenia, and bipolar. And, and often uh, bipolar and schizophrenia, people's cognition can get worse because of some of the baseline or younger, uh, you know, some of the cognitive challenges that are associated with bipolar and schizophrenia even in younger individuals. And depression uh, definitely is associated with cognitive challenges, especially like executive dysfunction. 
So speed of thinking, attention problems. So that's something um, that, can, that can also contribute to cognitive impairment in the aged. And then finally, there are a certain acute and chronic physical illnesses that are related to cognitive impairment. And we're talking again about heart disease and diabetes and um, diseases that have to do with blood sugar, blood flow. Other more psychosocial reasons and some other, uh, other more environmental reasons would include pain and grief and loss, definitely poor nutrition. <clears throat> this plays into Korsakoff's disease, lack of sleep, and especially if somebody has sleep apnea, <clears throat> and then being burned out from caregiving. Okay. So we're going to go into some of these major neurocognitive disorders. I've picked three that maybe you might encounter in, in the field and, or in your clients. So let's talk about Alzheimer's disease. So we already, already talked about MCI, but just to let you know that people with MCI, they can, there's three outcomes of that. One is it can get worse and go into dementia. Most commonly, it goes into Alzheimer's disease, but not exclusively. Um, it could stay the same for a long time and, and maybe not decline or, de or decline very slowly. And in some cases, people get better. So something like that would be somebody who maybe has been on a medication that, that causes cognitive impairment or somebody who's depressed. And when you treat that underlying depression, their thinking clears up. It could be somebody who had a, a mild ischemic change and, and over time they improve. But for the folks who get worse, it's typically that there's some kind of neurodegenerative disease underlying that. Okay. And it's pretty, it's pretty significant, 12 to 15% of people with MCI progress to dementia every year and about half of the folks in four years. So it is considered a risk factor for dementia and especially Alzheimer's disease. So if you have clients with MCI, it's really important to pay attention to that because that might be a good time to intervene and try to see if you can slow progression of, of, um, of decline or at least keep an eye on those people to, to see if, you know, if they get better, if you treat it, if you treat their under, you know, what you think might be their underlying problem, what happens to them? So Alzheimer's disease is the most common form of dementia. So we've got over 6 million Americans with this, almost 34 pe million people in the world. And um, it's an age-related dementia. So you can see that on, in this diagram, you know, about 27.8% of folks between 65 and 74 years old can be diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. Uh, but that number is higher in the 75 to 84 group and about the same in the 85 years group. So essentially, some, some, this is an average. So some, some epidemiological studies say that it's closer to 50% in people that are over 85. This is what happens to a brain that has Alzheimer's disease. Um, uh, grossly speaking, it shrinks. So atrophy. And there's particular 
predominance in the beginning where the atrophy is in, in the parietal lobes, which is in the back part of the brain, uh, but it, and the temporal lobes, which is here, as you see here on the side, but it does move more frontally as the disease progresses. So, um, but you can see this, all these big spaces, these sulci are really wide and here you can see they're nice and tight in this person's brain who didn't die of Al from Alzheimer's. But other things happen in the brain. There's these deposits in the brain of proteins that are abnormal. They're called amyloid plaques. And, um, and you can also have the uh, neurofibrillary tangles, which are have to do with tau protein in the brain. And these really affect the cell functioning and their communication. And eventually you get synapses that are lost. There's inflammation in the brain. You have deficits in major neurotransmitter systems, but acetylcholine is one of them. And eventually you have neuronal death and you get the severe tissue atrophy. So there's a lot of things going on in the brain of somebody with Alzheimer's disease, but the major neurological uh, features that you see include the plaques and the tangles, but there needs to be other things going on too at autopsy to really make that diagnosis. So how does it start? Often typically a memory problem. So Alzheimer's usually presents first with a memory problem, not exclusively, but that's the classic symptomology. And then gradually it gets worse. And then other things can be affected like people's reasoning or their visual spatial abilities. So they get lost in familiar areas. And a good amount of the folks that have Alzheimer's don't have a real full appreciation of their cognitive deficits. So they may think that they're fine or that whatever is going on is normal for their age. There are really, there's no cure for Alzheimer's disease. Um, right now, it, you can treat it with drugs that enhance memory. So you might heard of denepazil or rivastigmine or memantine, and they slow the process, at least for some people, but there is no cure. Um, people with Alzheimer's disease also can get psychosis and, and they can get depressed or super anxious. And so that's treated um, much the same as in other disorders with those same features. They can be given um, antipsychotics, antidepressants, or anxiolytics. Now, vascular cognitive impairment, this is a, um, this is a MRI of somebody with white matter, what you call hyperintensity. So where the, the, the arrows are pointing, this is all areas that look real bright on, um, on an MRI scan, you can see it here, you can see it here. And so this, this could be areas of ischemia. Um, it, it, sometimes it could be areas that have inflammation around it, but essentially what the cause of this is, is somehow the blood is not getting to the, to the small, small 
capillaries of the brain. So either it's either there are little bleeds or it's getting blocked because the capillaries are essentially plugged from cholesterol or they get really hard. They don't, they don't uh, give and the blood just isn't getting to go where it needs to go. And so over time and with a lot of accumulation, you get these, what they call periventricular white matter disease. And the reason they call it periventricular is because these are the ventricles of the brain. But you can have it in, in other uh, areas. You can have little strokes. You can have little tiny punctate areas of um, ischemia called lacoons. There are lots of kind of different ways to get cerebrovascular disease. And typically, it's related to disorders associated with disrupted blood flow to the brain. So either it's ischemic, meaning it gets blocked somehow, or there's a hemorrhage, meaning there's a bleed. And so again, small vessel disease, you can have something bigger, like a major stroke. Um, you can have multiple smaller strokes. You can have a single strategically placed lesion in a very key area of the brain, like the thalamus, which can cause that. And um, so they can be large or small or any combination. So they're not mutually exclusive. So this is a really cool picture of the vasculature of, of the brain. So really you can have, a, if you have a stroke, it can be in the carotid arteries here. It can be in some of these other major cerebral arteries that have these distributions all over the brain. And as you can see, these branch off and get smaller and smaller and smaller and into the capillaries. So this, this lots can go wrong. Um, and these more of these micro, either micro bleeds or, or micro ischemic events um, often happen in, in the capillaries. So um, vascular cognitive impairment as the sole cause of dementia is really not that common unless again, it's a major stroke or a strategically placed lesion or somebody has lots and lots of white matter disease, um, which sometimes can be due to uh, cerebral, what they call angiography, and you can't even say it, um, angiopathy or some genetic disorders. But in most, most cases, it's, it's cumulative damage. And it often frequently co-occurs with Alzheimer's disease. So you see the two together quite a bit. There's some kind of relationship that we're beginning to understand more if, if, it, if vascular disease kind of helps the expression of Alzheimer's disease. Um, but there is some, some relationship between the two and some for some patients. Some of the symptoms, if, if you've had a stroke, a little, even a little one, in a strategic place, depending on where it is in the brain, you can have language problems, you can have motor problems, you can have slurred speech, you can have problems uh, planning and reasoning. It really has to do with where it's happening in the brain and what, what networks 
of communication in the brain are disrupted. So what is the treatment for this is really to control the factors that are responsible for the disease, right? Uh, for the little ischemic or hemorrhagic events. So it could be cardiac risk factors, diabetes, um, hyper, so these are hypertension, high cholesterol, cardiac arrhythmias, and, and I should definitely have on their diabetes. Also, another one would be sleep apnea. So these are things that need to be controlled and treated in order to reduce one's risk for vascular cognitive impairment. The other, another one that you might see in patients who have severe drinking problems is something called Wernicke's Korsakoff syndrome. So you might have heard of it called wet brain, or you might have heard it called alcoholic dementia. But essentially, the specifically Wernicke's Korsakoff's disease is due to a thiamine deficiency, so vitamin B1. And how, um, how that becomes deficient is usually, for some reason, people are not eating or they're not absorbing their nutrients. So in alcoholics, course, coughs, people typically are drinking alcohol and they're either not eating or they're eating lots of sugary food and they get a vitamin deficiency, which over time affects um, particularly certain areas in the middle of the brain. I've seen people who have Korsakoff syndrome, though that's non-alcoholic, uh, from extended periods of vomiting and poor absorption of food. And they're not, maybe they'll, they're, they will eat, but they can't keep it down. And if that goes on for too long, people can develop a Korsakoff syndrome too. So, the treatment for that is to stop drinking if you're an if it's alcoholic and also to get B1 and thiamine supplementation. And then there is psychotic thinking that goes with this and you would want to treat the psychosis as well. But let's take a little closer look at it. It's kind of like two phases of it. So it's either two phases or it could be two separate disorders that seem to go together. N nobody is 100% sure. But the first part of the syndrome is getting Wernicke's encephalopathy. People get confusion. They get um, eye movement problems, nystagmus, double vision. They get clumsy and have coordination problems, which is called ataxia, and they have a thiamine deficiency. The Korsakoff's part has to do with being forgetful. So people not only, they can't learn new information, so that we call that anterograde amnesia, they can't make new memories, but they also are forgetful of the past. It's both, and that's called retrograde amnesia. But what's really interesting about forgetting in the past is it only goes back so far. And it seems to relate to um, kind of like when the drinking really started to affect their brain. So some people may not, some people may forget up to, let's say, six, eight months, like before the actual onset of the Wernicke's, Corsica, uh, Wernicke's syndrome. 
And then some people, you know, are short, have retrograde amnesia just for a little while. It, it just depends on how long they've been drinking and when the problem actually started to manifest. So the retrograde amnesia doesn't go back to like they forget their childhood memories. It's more like forgetting um, recent history. So for example, in, in this woman I saw with the, um, uh, the non-alcoholics who was vomiting for, for months, she started to develop seizures and have um, uh, vomiting, let's say in December. But her, her amnesia for the past went back, you know, eight months before that. So she couldn't remember the job that she had when she got sick, but she was able to remember the job that she had before she got sick. And then on memory tests, you would ask her to learn a word list and she couldn't do it. She would learn very little and forget it really fast. So she had both the retrograde and the anterograde amnesia. There is also something called confabulating, which is like making up stories. The brain basically starts to make up stories because it can't remember and it, it fills in the blanks with stuff that people really sound like they know what they're talking about, but it's, it's not true. It's not real. It didn't happen to them. And, and then some people can get psychotic as well. So, um, what happens is typically the Wernicke's part goes away. You can treat that, people can recover from that, but the Korsakoff's part may or may not improve. It, it can improve over time as long as people get thiamine and stop drinking, but in some folks, it's permanent. They only get so much better and I've, I've seen that and they just stay at this amnestic state for from from here on out. So this is what what um, the brain looks like. You can see all these problems. This is the thalamus on the left, where the two these two long arrows are. These are hyperintensities. There, they're hyperintensities more in the frontal lobes and in the cerebral cortex, actually. Here, so this is so. This is the ribbon, the outside part of the brain. Um, these little two areas here are called the mammillary body. So all of this makes up really a memory system, and um, and you can see by the bright spots that this this is the widespread involvement in somebody with alcoholics Korsakoff disease. Um, I thought it was really important to talk about health disparities and dementia risk. So, you know, life happens in the context and it's not just genetics. And we know that there are social and e economic factors that, um, that uh, really drive health outcomes. And these are related to dementia risk as well. So um, let's take a look at some of these factors. Really, these are factors that affect people's nutrition, affect people's health care, affects people's stress. It affects their, when I say health care, whether they have enough ed education or knowledge to seek help. 
to understand what their symptoms are uh, or whether they get to see a doctor, how soon they get to see a doctor, their access to a doctor, how well the doctor takes care of them. And, um, and so more and more research is really focusing on these health disparities like disproportionate health, or I would say disease in people and healthcare disparities, which is uh, differences in people's access and use of, of healthcare system. So any of these things can go wrong, right? Somebody doesn't have a good job, they may not have insurance, they may not have enough money, right, to eat uh, properly. They might live in a neighborhood where um, there's high levels of pollution uh, that they can't get out and walk. So that's really bad if you have cardiovascular risk factors. They might have low literacy. They may not have access to somebody who can treat them in a language which they're comfortable using. Um, they might not have good education about health because they've not been exposed to it or they don't even think about, you know, like, how do I seek this out? They may have, again, food insecurity or, you know, don't have access to good food, healthy options for cardiovascular health. And they may not have good support systems, may have a lot of stress, maybe exposure to trauma and violence. And again, poor health coverage. They have a provider that isn't really culturally knowledgeable enough if they're from a different culture um, or the providers aren't available and their quality of care, either they're not diagnosed quickly enough, they're not diagnosed, um, uh, they get incomplete workups, things like that all contribute to people's healthcare. A lot of these things are a proxy for racism and discrimination. So you'll find out populations that experience racism and discrimination have higher, higher amounts of or disproportionately high uh, issues with economic stability, you know, where you live, what kind of education. So um, this is something that if you're, if you're working with people that are victims of racism and discrimination, or if you're working with individuals that are low SES, just know that they could be very much at increased risk for cognitive problems because of the myriad of factors that play into that. Um, we know that Alzheimer's disease risk is, um, does vary by ethnicity and race. So older African-Americans are twice as likely to have AD than other dementias compared to older white people. Um, Hispanics are about one and a half times more likely. So um, this is something really important for people to, to keep note of. Also, we know in native populations, Native Americans, there is a landmark study by Kaiser Permanente looking at like 275,000 people who are followed over 14 years. And only you can only do this right in the major healthcare system. And they looked at comorbidities, right? We talked about those ones for vascular dementia in, in a broad variety of, of patients. And this was the first study to include Native Americans as well and Alaska Natives in dementia prevalence. 
And I just wanted to point out to you, you can see where I have these areas circled in red, the higher prevalence rates of these risk factors for cerebral vascular disease, for example, highest in African-Americans um, and uh, also cardiovascular disease, heart failure, highest in African-Americans, ischemic heart disease, meaning uh, basically blockage, right, of blood flow in the heart, actually was very high in American Indians and Alaska Natives. Peripheral artery diseases be like people getting um, uh, problems more in the extremities um, was pretty high in African-Americans and also in Alaska Natives. And Hispanics seem to be pretty much in the middle uh, in terms of their risk. So this is really just to illustrate what the first slide was talking about as how um, there can be racial and ethnic differences in risk factors. So this is, this is why this is considered a health disparity. So we're gonna switch gears a little bit now. We have about 40 minutes left. I'm gonna talk about how to screen for cognitive impairment. And really there are two ways to do this. One is to watch people and the other one is to actually do something more formal. So let's talking about watching people. Um, really your five senses are your best, right? So listen for whether they have slurred speech, listen for whether they understand you, but don't get that confused with if they don't speak English as a first language, right? Um, maybe they have a lot of pauses in their speech because they can't think of the word. Or maybe they're saying a lot, a lot of words, but their speech, they're really not saying anything with any content. So we call that empty speech. So when this is happening, you're trying to think, okay, there may be some kind of a aphasia going on here, or perhaps they're having word finding difficulties. They're having problems with concept formation. So their speech really is vague. And then often people will tell you the same story over and over again, maybe three times in the same, in the same interview, sometimes four, or they might be asking questions and they're asking it like two, three times and they, don't even remember that they asked you that question five minutes ago. These are red flags. You can look at their function, right? So are they, are they late paying bills, not because they don't have the money, but they're losing track? Or are they losing track to the, the other way around and they're double paying bills? Um, are they forgetting appointments, including the appointment with you? Do they need more calls for reminders or are they calling you? Like, where do I go? What time's my appointment? And then they call you again. Um, do they get lost on the way or having trouble making it to your office? Whether it's lost in familiar areas, you can't take the bus lines, they're getting confused. Are they having car accidents if they're driving? Um, if you look in the fridge, is there expired food in the fridge? Are they having medication management problems? So are you counting pills? And if you count the pills, are there too many or too few? And um, their ability to change technology, to, their ability to use technology changes. So they used to be pretty good with email and surfing or using their, uh, if they have a smartphone or even their flip phone, how's that change? Are they getting confused? Can they not 
do that efficiently anymore. And what's the house look like? Is it disorganized? Some people have always been disorganized or they're hoarders, but uh, some hoarders can have cognitive impairment, but it's, it's not a, it's not a, a one-on-one -on -one correlation, but is there disorganization in the home? So that's, and is that a change? So some of, some people you may not have known before they were, you know, before they got into condition that you saw them, but then it's really helpful to talk to a roommate or a friend or somebody, a spouse who knows them, and they'll tell you, hey, there's been a change here. And that's really what you, you need to know too. Has there been a change from prior functioning? And when, how long has this been going on? How did it come on? Suddenly or gradually? Those are very important questions to find out, find the answers to. So also, are they victims of scams? Are they showing judgment problems? So you can ask them, you know, do you answer the phone? Do you talk to people who are soliciting you on the phone? Um, these are indications of scam risk. I'm sure many of you have encountered this in your patients. Um, are they giving money to people or excessively to charities or causes? So uh, there was a, a woman at a uh, assisted living who ab absolutely she was developing dementia and she used to have so much guilt and anxiety that she started to give excessively to all these charities because she was worried that she was going to go to hell. And that was that I believe was a change for her. And uh, basically, you know, she was getting scammed, right? Maybe, maybe they were legitimate organizations, but she was getting, she was getting scammed by them. Here's a scenario that you might run into. You have a 75 year old woman, she lives alone. She might be in contact with her daughter. She has high school education, uh, worked as a homemaker. She has these conditions, hypertension, diabetes. She has arthritis. She's a little overweight. She's saying she's not depressed, but she does have some sleep problems. She's on um, medications for uh, enalapril, metformin for diabetes. She's on a diuretic and she takes Tylenol PM for pain and for sleep. So Tylenol PM has Benadryl in it. For those of you who don't know, all those PM medications have Benadryl. And let's say she, sometimes she takes two because she can't sleep. She um, shops on her own, pays her own bills and manages her medications. She feels her memory is normal for her age but the social worker notices that she repeats herself in conversation. Her house is really messy and cluttered with papers all piled up and disorganized. She has shut off notices, notices for the utilities, even though she tells you she's managing her bills. This is what you see. The refrigerator is dirty and has expired food in it. And she forgets her social worker appointments. And when you're visiting her, if you're in the field, she doesn't expect you to be there. Her daughter's concerned about her too. She feels like her mom is repeating herself also. She misses doctor's appointments. And she has unused pills in her pill box. 
despite the fact that she's telling you she's managing her pills. She forgets stuff, recent activities, and she lost her car in the mall parking lot, was looking for it one day for three hours. What, what, what are the red flags to you if this was a, a patient of yours or a client of yours? What are the red flags? If you were her caseworker, what would we be? Have mild cognitive, the expired food. Yeah, yeah, right. Okay, great. Um, do, you, do you believe her when she tells you everything's okay? She's repeating herself. No, she does not believe her when she says she's okay. Right, right, exactly. So this is somebody that is going to need some, some kind of follow-up. Um, and what, what you might want to do with her is... Well, let me ask you, what's your triage for her? I'm going to, I'm going to turn on the chat. What's your triage for her? If you had this patient, what would you do with her? You think she needs somebody to check out her cognition more? So she, she would need some kind of follow-up evaluation with somebody, either some cognitive screening or be referred to her doctor to find out you know, what's going on. She probably would need somebody to go to the doctor with her, either her daughter or, or somebody because she gets lost, she's forgetful. So she may not be able to get there by herself, right? So you're right, you definitely picked up the red flags for her um, and she probably needs somebody to go through her finances and sort out, you know, where she is, right? What's, what's left to pay. And I wonder what her financial management is like. So it raises all sorts of questions about her independent functioning. Do we know she has dementia or not? Hmm. It's hard to know because she is having functional impairment. But we don't know if this is really dementia, if, the, if she, she could be, she says she's okay, but she's not sleeping. She could be depressed. So she definitely needs some further assessment and at the very least needs somebody to come back and check on her. But I think she needs something more immediate than that. So this might be some, this is a way that you can look for those red flags. And this is completely through observation that you've discovered a lot about her, especially also, you talk to her daughter. So the next step is to do some cognitive screening. Cognitive screening is basically a brain checkup, and it, it taps into basically and very coarsely each of the lobes, whether it be perception and, and you know calculations, whether it be a little bit of problem solving and reasoning and attention, or memory, which is typically temporal lobe. So you're, you're doing a gentle probing of every lobe. It's very cursory and uh, it's going to pick up, you know, some stuff, um, but it's not going to pick up, I'm, I'm missing something here, sorry. It's not going to pick up um, everything. So a common cognitive screening instrument is the minimal state. Probably many of you have given it. Basically it asks people what's the date, remember a few items, and recall them after five minutes. 
either doing mental subtractions by 100, uh, minus seven, minus seven, minus seven, we call those serial seven subtractions, or spelling the word world backwards. Um, you're gonna ask them to draw a figure, this intersecting pentagon, so you're checking their visual spatial abilities. There's, takes about 10 minutes to give. People need a blank piece of paper and a pencil. 30 possible points. And the, the typical cutoff, when you think about does someone have dementia or not, is if they get 23 or lower on the mini mental. However, that cutoff is really too high. We found out it should be maybe a little bit lower, especially in people that are not highly educated. You might be looking at a 21. That, you know, 22 is more normal, 23 is more normal. But nevertheless, some of these around 23 or 24, let's just say 22, 21, you're gonna think, okay, something's going on here, what's going on? And there are 11 different versions of the mini mental in, in different languages. So it's in Spanish, I think it's in Mandarin, it's in a number of different languages. So this is something that all doctors pretty much understand what a score in the mini mental means and it's a good kind of cursory test. Even somebody, you know, somebody who's highly educated, let's say over 12 years of education and they get and they're 70 years old and they get a 25, it's probably not good. So there are norms for this. In other words, you can you can get a sense of where somebody falls in a percentile rank by looking at how other people of that person's same age and education perform on this test. So that's a very, a very common test. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the factors that affect it. So remember we were talking about language, age, education and literacy, culture and acculturation, race and ethnicity. So scores vary according to people's life experiences. The older you get, the worse you're gonna do on that test. But again, if you're doing like a 22, it's not good really, no matter how old, you know, if you're under 80, it's not a good score. So, um, so these are things that have to be considered when you're, when you're giving any kind of a cognitive test, including a screening test. The other thing that's important, sorry, if you're getting seasick, is um, they're compared to normative groups. So that means it's a group of people who've taken the test who are supposed to be cognitively normal, supposed to be, and you compare your, your client to that group, uh, to their age group and their educational level. And it gives you where your client falls uh, at the percentile compared to other people. So anybody who's average, you know, and average and above, there's absolutely no worry about them. Um, but somebody who start to go in this low performer range, like the 16th percentile, which is right here, then you're starting to wonder what's causing this. Is it something that, is it, one, is it MCI? Or is it some other factor like they didn't have a good night's sleep? They're taking Benadryl or some combination of all those things. And that's really what the job is of uh, to figure out, let's say, of, of a case, when you bring this, this case to um, 
to a case conference or or a neuropsychologist or, or a, a psychiatrist or an MD looks at it and tries to understand all the factors that could be playing into why this person is performing low. So again, it could be brain function problem. It could be disease that's affecting the test performance. It could be physical state. They're just not having a good day. Um, they could be depressed. They may not be motivated. They may not be familiar with testing, or maybe they just aren't, aren't comfortable with the tester. So these are all things that can affect test performance. So you can't be really rash in your judgment, but again, it does provide objective information about this person's cognitive abilities that day. So what we do know is anybody who's had more disadvantages in life is may not do so well on these cognitive tests. People that really haven't had access to higher education or people who just aren't familiar with the test, with taking tests may not, may not do so well, right? So some of this is about familiarity. So if you have somebody with five years of education who really didn't get much schooling and, and we definitely see patients, right? With, with this scenario, they may not be familiar with ever having to draw a Pentagon or remember three items to tell you five minutes later what it is. So that's gonna be foreign to them and that can impact their test taking. So that's why it really requires knowledge about these tests in order to really, uh, a training in these tests in order to administer them and interpret them. But let's talk about what happens. So what happens in testing? So you can get cognitive screening, which only takes five minutes, or you can get neuropsychological testing, which is far more extensive and can take anywhere from, you know, an hour to two hours to four hours to five hours, depending on who you're testing and what reason. So you can test people's concentration and their attention. And usually those are are a test that looks at, you know, can people concentrate? Are they distracted? And, and in daily life, this could mean that they can't follow a TV show or read a book. They can't track while you're talking to them. They can't stay plugged in for any extended period of time. This is the kind of test that we might give somebody. We're asking them to not only, you know, do this, do it as fast as they can, match the numbers to the symbols. So you see they're matched up up here. So down here, they're gonna to need to put a one. Here's the two. They'll need to mark a two. Here's the four. So they would need to put a four here. So this test involves attention. It involves speeded thinking and a little bit of memory. This is an example of an attention and speeded thinking test. We do look at their memory people's memories with extensive testing in many different ways, verbal and nonverbal. People are asked to remember a story. They're asked to remember a word list. They might be asked to recognize faces or, or remember figures. And then they're usually asked to learn them. And then you, you, you tell them, or you may not tell them, remember it. You put some tests in the middle, you keep testing, and then a half an hour, 20 minutes later, you ask them to remember those words or remember the stories or figures. 
So you're going to find out how much information they really do recall 20 minutes later and how well they learned the information in the first place. And when people do poorly on these kind of tests, then they're usually having problems with remembering conversations and appointments, remembering to pay their bills. If they have visual problems, they might get lost while they're driving. If they're having visual spatial memory problems, they might forget how to use technology. Um, so they, they can have problems managing their medications. Like when do I take them? And which ones do I take? They may have problems filling the the uh, pill the pill organizer too. So this is an example of a nonverbal memory test. We first ask them to copy it. And that tells you if they have any visual spatial problems. And then we don't say anything and we ask them to remember it anywhere from one minute to 20 minutes later. And we watch how they do. So here's an example of a normal person. They do a pretty good job up here copying it. And then immediately they recall most of it, but you can see there's some amount of forgetting that goes on. And here they, they're having trouble reproducing it accurately, but by and large, they remember the main features of this over time. Here's somebody with mild dementia. The copy is really distorted. They're having trouble organizing it. There could be some perceptual problems going on and they forget mostly everything immediately. So this is what dementia looks like on this test. So you can see the stark difference. When people have visual spatial problems, you're gonna see again, this isn't the best copying, right? So that's partly a visual spatial problem. And this can really affect people getting lost, bumping into things, depth perception and recognizing things. We, we, you can assess for people's naming and their ability to generate words. You can do whole language testing where you assess their comprehension and writing and reading. And again, this will tell you more about aphasia but typically in somebody with dementia, what you're gonna see is really problems with word finding and problems with um, generating words quickly. Apraxia is, is having trouble um, performing a motor sequence even though you don't have any motor problems. So you're not paralyzed, you don't have any tremor, or even if you do, you can't show somebody how you would brush your teeth or comb your hair. And this relates to things like having problems dressing and putting on clothes and, and doing self-care and hygiene at home. So there is a disconnect between kind of knowing what you have to do in your head and actually performing that activity. There's some disconnection in the brain. And that's often why people do have trouble dressing themselves, brushing their teeth, and they need assistance with this, especially when they have significant dementia. And, and finally, we're gonna talk about executive functioning. This is a really expansive, expansive area of higher cognitive functioning that has to do with 
planning and organizing. It has to do with learning. It has to do with being flexible in your thinking, right? If plan A doesn't work, go to plan B. It has to do with error monitoring and being able to track what you're doing and recognize like if you make a mistake and really other things like being socially appropriate and learning to inhibit, you know, this is not a time to swear. This is not a time, you know, to flip somebody off while you're driving, even though we all kind of, you know, sometimes um, blow that one. But it's about regulating your emotion, your emotions, right? So people with executive dysfunction can have trouble in, in any of these areas. And usually it's more than one. And this happens a lot in Alzheimer's disease, in cerebral vascular uh, based dementias especially in frontal temporal dementia, there's a lot of emotional dysregulation and inappropriateness and personality change. And so, you know, one way we look at this is ask people to uh, shift their thinking. So we ask people in this case to go from letter, number to letter to number to letter. So this is like one to A, A to two, two to B, B to three, and so on. And you stop them and they have to take it from here and finish the rest of the test and not make mistakes and do it quickly. So this requires attention, but it also involves being able to be flexible and thinking. So all of these things can get people in trouble in daily life if you have problems in executive dysfunction. Again, it could be saying something inappropriate. It could be poor judgment. People are likely to get scammed or not make good decisions in an emergency. Um, it could have to do with not being able to follow through on recommendations. So even though they know that the recommendation is there, they're not able to plan and follow through on that plan. Um, and again, poor error monitoring ability. So they may not be aware of when they make mistakes. So maybe they'll make a mistake while they're cooking or they'll make a mistake while they're balancing their checkbook and it could be a disaster if they try to do their taxes. We don't really have much time to talk about motor functioning, but it's pretty obvious that people with motor functioning might have slurred speech, they might have tremors, they may have incoordination or trip and fall or poor dexterity. So the most important thing when you're interpreting these tests is to make sure that you have the right norms, that, that the test is going to be valid. So if somebody tells you I got two hours of sleep last night and then you want to test them for, for three hours and they, they have memory problems, there is some question about the validity of that testing because they could be tired. If somebody speaks Spanish and you, you know, or, or is bilingual and aren't really strong in English and you test them in English, they're going to be validity issues because they should be probably tested either in both languages or in Spanish. So again, what you want to make sure is that you're measuring the actual cognitive ability that day and not something else. So all those things have to be, we talked about uh, considering all those sociocultural factors and education, how much they've had, and again, finding the correct norms. And then what do you do if you discover that someone has cognitive problems? How can you help them? So 
one of the things is use visuals. So if somebody has a trouble remembering what you're telling them, write things down for them or draw a diagram. Give them a notebook, right? Like the 99 cent store notebook or something like that. Don't tell them go get a notebook because they'll either forget or they just can't get it together to go get it. They may need you or someone to arrange automatic debits and deposits for them. They may need pill organizers and somebody who can fill the pill organizer up for them. They may need phone call reminders or alarm clocks. Uh, working with the collateral is really helpful if the person has a collateral, if they have a memory problem. Otherwise, it's gonna require some outside help to probably get them to appointments and remember appointments, et cetera. You can recommend people to a psychiatrist if they have psychosis or depression. If you think like in our case study that somebody has cognitive impairment, then it's a good idea to refer them to a neurologist or at the very least their PCP to do some cognitive screening and, if, and refer for more extensive testing if necessary. If you worry about a client's ability to make sound decisions, then you might have to think about a capacity evaluation, right? To see, do they have the ability to make decisions about their finances or their healthcare? For differential diagnosis, uh, if a doctor sees them and can't quite figure out exactly what's wrong, they, your patient may get referred for brain scans. They will definitely need laboratory tests to rule out re reversible um, reasons for cognitive impairment, like low thyroid, for example, or check for thiamine deficiency if they drink. They might need extensive neuropsychological testing or retesting like a year later to see if they're continuing to decline. They may need hearing and vision test referrals if you think that part of their cognitive problem is due to that. Definitely writing things down and using calendars is helpful. You may need to make recommendations about whether somebody should be driving or should get a driving test, whether they should be using a stove if they're gonna forget and burn food and be a risk for a fire in their home? Do they need help at home? Do you think they need somebody to come in, you know, four hours twice a week to help them get stuff done, take them to an appointment, help them clean the home? And educate their, them and their family about what's going on. So it's important to really explain to folks this is what, you know, this is what your doctor says is going on with you. Let, let's try to help you. This is what that means. And then you can also always recommend that people stay cognitively and physically stimulated. Can they exercise to get blood flow to their brain? Make sure that they're not socially isolated because that is very detrimental to cognition in an older person. Folks that can't live by themselves, they may, may need to go to adult daycare or again, have some kind of help coming into their home. If somebody has dementia and has 
terrible behavior problems. Maybe they're aggressive or maybe, you know, they're, they're just not communicating with their family. The family's frustrated. They may need a consult to help problem solve that and improve the communication in the family and teach family members how to communicate with somebody with dementia. If, if you have a client uh, that either is taking care of somebody with dementia, um, they may need to go to a support group because of the stress, which I highly recommend. Linda, I want to thank you so much for taking the time today. My pleasure. My pleasure. Appreciate everybody hanging in there for the talk too. Um, hope everybody has a great day. Thanks again. Thanks, Jean, for all your help today.